Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us, or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you as always. Thank you so much for joining. Honor, privilege, and pleasure. Uh, to have you here with me, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. You've had a series of leaks today, leaks that are clearly uh, in violation of oaths, of laws, leaks that are uh, deeply unethical, and leaks that serve only one purpose, to weaken this presidency even if it means weakening the country with it, which, of course, it does, to damage this president no matter what the cost. You had a, a series of uh, two transcripts from phone calls that President Trump had earlier this year with Mexican President Peña Nieto and uh, Prime Minister Turnbull of Australia. The entirety of the transcripts, entire conversations between heads of state were leaked. They were published in the Washington Post. Now, I understand why somebody would do this in the sense that it shows the president doing what politicians do, which is trying to cajole, trying to reason, to argue, to debate, to bargain and yes, there are political considerations in that. The president can't just say, I want to do this because I want to do this no matter what it looks like to the American people. He works for us. And so the art of the possible is a necessary consideration for the commander in chief. And yet there was nothing in the phone call with either the president of Mexico or the prime minister of Australia that was damaging. It was just maybe a bit embarrassing, but at some point we have to wonder, okay, would the Washington Post approve of someone setting up cameras in the East Wing and taking video of President Trump as he's, you know, getting in and out of the bathroom? I mean, at, at, at what point is it too much? This isn't about transparency. This isn't about holding power accountable. This is about tearing down this president and those around him, no matter what the cost. And I think I've built up enough credibility in the time that I've been doing this show with you here to say that when the president errs or when I think the president goes too far or makes a mistake, I tell you. I share my opinion, at least, with you. On this, though, on this matter of leaking these transcripts, there is no justification for it whatsoever. Never mind the illegality of it, but there's no justification for it from even an ethical perspective. This is just spite. And someone with access, at least one person and perhaps a few people who maintain very high level access in this White House and have security clearances, decided to take this information and 
for the purposes of mockery, release it to the public. There was nothing in there that was so shocking. There, there was no information that we found out about this president that would change the minds of anybody who has been a supporter of his up to this point. In fact, the president was vociferous. He was strong on the issue of there should be a wall. In fact, the president was pushing the prime minister of Australia, saying, look, I told people that we're going to have a moratorium on refugees, and now you're telling me that I've got to come through on an Obama deal. What we saw in those transcripts, both on the issue of building a wall at our southern border, as well as dealing with our, our dear friend, our close ally, Australia, but on the issue of refugee uh, resettlement and, and us vetting refugees that Australia will not take, that we would take under an Obama-era agreement, what we saw was Donald Trump, president of the United States, trying to keep his promises to the American people. And the fact that he speaks the way that he does and the Washington elites and the coastal elites in New York and L.A. and everywhere else, that they find this so hilarious and so worthy of mockery doesn't change the fact that I don't care that Donald Trump is not the most eloquent. It's not like a Shakespeare monologue every time he gets on the phone with somebody or even when he gives a prepared speech. In fact, anyone who would argue that Donald Trump is not an effective communicator should be laughed at. He's clearly an incredibly effective communicator because that's why he became president of the United States, despite the concerted, colluding efforts of the media and the Democrats and a whole slew of other actors to do every and Republicans, by the way, many of them, to do everything in their power to prevent him from becoming president. And they failed. This is why I do give him some degree of deference. This is why I'm willing to come in here despite reading and researching all day long. That's what I do. I will let you know this because I feel like I'm among friends. I'm somewhat obsessed with preparing for this show. I do the best that I can with that every single day. But some days, I just don't know what the president's doing. But that doesn't mean that I say he is out of his depth. He has no idea what's going on. He's because he obviously knows some things and has some instincts and understands some aspects of American politics that nobody else does. That's why he was an anomaly. That's why he was the political tidal wave that very few people, and certainly not the people that are most uh, held up as those that do understand political dynamics and do see what's coming, they were hit by this tidal wave and had no idea what was going on. So he clearly knows some things that others don't. But back to the leaks for a moment. You had leaks of these transcripts. Nothing outrageous, nothing problematic, but it's a, it's a private phone call. And I just wonder, why do we think, and I'm starting to turn on this issue of, and I have been for a long time, quite honestly, that the press thinks that it can violate laws, whether it's about disclosing national security secrets or disclosing uh, illegally obtained information with impunity. The only reason we all think that's okay is because the press does a very good job of making everyone think that they actually have a legal exception to do that. They do not. I, believe it or not, had a debate years ago uh, with a lawyer for one of the major newspapers, one of the biggest ones. You saying, well, you know, we're allowed to publish whatever we we're allowed to publish whatever we want, you know, and under the law we're fine. I said, well, that's actually not true. It's Department of Justice precedent, it's Department of Justice policy 
not to prosecute you for certain uh, disclosures of sensitive, damaging information. But you actually have no legal exception to that. There's no carve out. You just a free press. But right now, you could argue that anybody with an iPhone and an Internet connection can be part of the press. So they don't even really they don't have a leg to stand on other than convincing people that they're special. But back to the post and the leaks. So there are those leaks. And then also we have the grand jury convening leak. In the Mueller probe, by the way, I should note that I've been telling you all along, one, the Mueller probe was a terrible idea, and conservatives who were saying, oh, no, we have to be ethical here, they were falling into a trap. It's one they fall into time and time again, which is they think that if they show good faith and they act with goodwill and they obey the rules, the other side will not only respect them for it, but will start to act the same way. And in a zero-sum game with the presidency in the balance, you can't make mistakes like this. I understand why President Trump is annoyed with Jeff Sessions. I also told you he would not fire him, and he did not. But I understand why he's annoyed, because there never should have been a special counsel appointed. Now we see what I've also been telling you all along, which is that, of course, there will be leaks from the special counsel. Did anybody really doubt that this would happen, whether it's from a top Mueller lieutenant or it's from somebody who's on the grand jury, who's not supposed to say anything but did. You know, they could be held in contempt of court, but plenty of people know. You know, all, you, all they've really learned now is that, you know, you just make sure you speak to somebody on the phone. You know, you don't leave an email or a text message trail, and, you know, you're probably not going to get caught. Unless they've got you wiretapped, you're not going to get caught. So this notion of, well, we're going we're gonna to find these leakers only if they're pretty dumb. Very unlikely otherwise. They may find some low-level leaker, and they'll just try to make an example of them. They'll trump up, pardon the expression, some charges to make to just make a point of this. But that's actually unjust, and it's, it's very uh, discouraging when I see lower-level people who get ripped apart by the machinery of the federal prosecutor's office for leaking information that is of, real, of actually no real national security consequence, and to pretend otherwise is just a lie. But, you know, they got to get somebody, so they'll just nail someone. That's very discouraging, but I think that may happen. So you have leaks about the phone calls between the pro- uh, President of the United States and two other heads of state, Mexico and Australia, and then you have leaks of the Mueller probe, and I'm also just seeing now breaking that there's another story uh, claiming that there has been long-term surveillance of a Trump associate. Now, you know, this is, and I, I literally just saw this before I came on air, so I'll have to, in, in the break, I'll be taking a look at it again. But at some point, we have to ask the question, is this, are, are we supposed to think that this is just coincidence? Are we really supposed to believe that the day after Trump just gives the establishment media and the Democrat Party a roundhouse kick to the face with, hey, we're going to have a skills-based immigration system now. We have a majority in Congress and a president who will sign it, so we're going to do this. Now, will they get it through or not? Who knows? But at least they're trying. At least they're pushing for it. At least you've got Purdue and Cotton senators who are willing to stand up and support this. And it forces Democrats to expose what a bunch of hypocrites they are, ignoramuses they are on the issue of immigration, to make preposterous arguments like, oh, a million green cards a year is the number. 500,000 is, is nativism. That's racism. Or, or even dumber, 
which I saw from one of the one of the dumbest pundits on CNN, and we'll, we'll, we might get to her actually with some audio in a little bit, uh, that a point system is racist. How can a point system be racist? In fact, the implication that a point system based on skills, language ability, and education on a global scale is racist is a suggestion for whomever says it that non-white people have lesser achievements, lesser credentials, lesser educational and linguistic backgrounds just as a matter of course. It's a deeply racist thing to say that a point system Remember, we're talking about on a global scale, not a point system within our own borders. We're talking about the entire world. That's racist. That's moronic to say that. But there are plenty of morons running around. Unfortunately, a lot of them are paid tons of money to go on TV and to tell you things, to pretend they're smarter than you, and they're not. To pretend that their fancy school means that they're better than you, and they're not. And to walk around and act as though whatever can be done to undermine and harm this presidency is somehow just on its face. It's just justified. It's justifiable. It's not. But the timing of the leaks today, all meant to harm Trump. The day, and of course, the phone conversations in question with the Australian prime minister and the president of Mexico, those phone conversations were, what, at the very, I think in January, a long time ago. They're released today. Why do you think that is? So now we know that what the media has done, in fact, is served as oppo research document dump sites for anyone inside the government with access who's willing to violate their oath, the trust of the people around them, by the way, and the trust of the American people to settle their petty political disputes. And so they've been funneling information to the press, and the press has been holding on to it to wield it for maximum political advantage. Let me ask you this. If this were about transparency, if this were about letting the American people know the truth about their government, why hold on to those transcripts for so long? Oh, really? We're going to say that they just got them now. Wouldn't that be convenient? Just got them the same day that there are other damaging leaks the administration on a day when anyone paying attention to the sentiment of this country realizes that when it comes to immigration, the more the American people know about the Democrats' position, the more Donald Trump's position on immigration and Senators Cotton and Purdue and others sounds really sensible. So they had to change the tune. They had to change the focus. And so all of a sudden, leaks, leaks, leaks. Boy, that will make us look awfully bad. I look like a dope. This is a killer. This deal will make me look terrible. It's bad for me. It's embarrassing to me. These are all the pull quotes that the Washington Post is uh, running with from the transcripts of the conversation between the president and uh, President Trump and the president of Mexico, Peña Nieto. Uh, there's and People have said, oh, look at what he said about his conversation with the Australian prime minister, that it was friendly and it was fine, and there was actually some tension when they were discussing things. Okay, so I I hate to break it to everybody, but in diplomacy, which is really what the president is doing at some level, right? That's he's he's acting in this case as as a diplomat of sorts, as well as an executive. Diplomats lie about you lie about stuff all the time. You know, watch somebody go go ask somebody from, you know, the State Department. Hey, you know, what do we think about Saudi Arabia's human rights record? Are they going to be like, yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, it's, you know, they're lopping off heads in the public square and they treat women like uh, like cattle. And it's uh, it's an it's an embarrassment. I mean, the Saudis are an embarrassment. No, 
They'll say something like, well, you know, we're working really hard with our Saudi partners to try and reach a new understanding of how we can collaborate on human rights initiatives and we have a program set up to, you know. Now you can say, well, Buck, that's not a live omission. I mean, it's, it's not honest. They won't honestly answer the question, you know. Is, is Saudi Arabia a theocratic fascist state? You know, ask somebody from, ask from any administration. Ask somebody from the State Department this. What are they going to say? Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, maybe when they leave, they'll be all tough about it. But when they're still working for the government, trust me, you're not going to hear much about how, yeah, in fact, it is a fascistic theocratic state. So th- this is why, by the way, I-, I was so opposed to all of those cables that were released by WikiLeaks, all those diplomatic cables. If people can't have conversations in confidence, then how can they, how can they engage in an honest discussion and try to move things forward? You know, you would think that journalists who, by the way, you know, more and more I think people are realizing, you think journalists are really going to protect their sources these days? Journalists don't care. Until journalists start getting locked up for information that is damaging national security, as long as it's just their sources, most of them will be like, well, you know, some people get locked up. You know, they shouldn't be they shouldn't be talking to the journalists. You know, that's how it goes. Journalists don't care. They uh, they they are reckless with this stuff. Uh, but just pulling pulling out some quotes from this, you see what this is all about. It's just about mocking the president. So they will go with this. They will take this information. They will print it. I mean, I just wonder, uh, you know, by the way, do you think The Washington Post and The New York Times tried really hard to get their hands on President Obama's college transcripts? Just putting that out. You think they, you think they really went the extra mile, really? were? And here's an even better question. And I know this is a hypothetical, but I think we all know the answer. Let's say that the intrepid guardians of this democracy, of this republic at the New York Times, got their hands on a, on a verified, authentic Obama college transcript, and it showed that he was a B-minus student, who then somehow magically went on to be the editor-in-chief of the Harvard Law Review. Wow. Um, but let's say that they found... And again, I know this is a hypothetical. Maybe he was an A-plus student, although not a lot of A-plus students usually start out at Occidental. So... But he, so he does. This. Sorry, Occidental. I know that's rough. Um, let's let's say that uh, they got their hands on the transcript. Do you think they'd publish it? No, no, they wouldn't publish it. They'd make some excuse. They would have some excuse for why uh, it's not relevant to the discussion. It's it's a violation of privacy. It was. You know, they're just they're playing games all the time. There there are really no journalistic ethics anymore. That's what we see. That's what the Washington Post and these other organizations are reinforcing all the time. They have no ethics. The moment that it is politically advantageous to them to burn a source or to forget about any standards in journalism, to forget about integrity, to forget about authenticity, the moment that it benefits their overall message and their mindset, then, then, then it's really all just guidelines. There are no rules. There are no ethics. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. And another possible leak here from CNN. Let me give you the latest. This is their breaking story right as we go on air here. Uh, Talking about the investigation, the Mueller probe. Someone's talking. Somebody who works for Mueller is talking to these guys and telling them stuff, uh, which is a violation of statute. It's unethical. The reason that grand jury proceedings are secret is because there can be damage done to the reputation of subjects of investigation who are entirely innocent. 
So, for example, let's say that, you know, your, your neighbor will go with someone named Bob. Hi, Bob. Let's say your neighbor Bob is the subject of a grand jury proceeding, and it is leaked to the press that people are looking to see whether Bob was trying to, I don't know, you know, buy, buy nuclear weapons on the black market. But Bob has got a very interesting career, right? But anyway, that gets out there. That can have real damage to that individual. Even then, if at the end of the grand jury proceedings, there are no charges filed because it turns out it was just a rumor or it was innuendo from some other evidence that they had and, and there was actually not enough to bring formal charges, which means that there's no reason to believe that individual did anything wrong. That person in the eyes of the law is entirely innocent. A grand jury proceeding that is already leaking is a very bad sign because it means that there is someone with access who is talking and who is doing damage to the, the president and, and some of his top advisors in the process and doing this intentionally. So um, here is what CNN was reporting on this. And this, again, this is a, a possible leak. When you look at what the information is, I don't know how they're getting it. Uh, more troublesome for Flynn. Investigators have been focusing on his lobbying work for the Turkish government, which the Defense Intelligence Agency chief didn't initially disclose as required by law. I mean, not not in like a way that anyone gets in real trouble for. But anyway, Flynn's lawyers have since retroactively registered his lobbying. Yeah, there you go. Page, the time Carter Page. This is from CNN's report today, just published, had been the subject of a secret intelligence surveillance warrant since 2014, Earlier than had been previously reported, U.S. officials briefed on the probe told CNN. Who the blank who has access to this probe thinks it is appropriate and thinks it is legal to disclose surveillance? Not even this isn't even a criminal probe to, to disclose surveillance of somebody who is vaguely associated with the Trump campaign. To, the, to CNN. But I want to go on further here. Quote, when information emerged last summer suggesting that the Russians were attempting to cultivate Page as a way to gain an entree into the Trump campaign, the FBI renewed its interest in him. Initially, FBI counterintelligence investigators saw the campaign as possible victims being targeted by Russian intelligence. Page denies working with any Russians as part of the Kremlin's election meddling, though he admits with some Rus though he admits interacting with some Russians during the campaign. End quote. So, are what are they talking about here? By the way, for are, they, are we are we looking at surveillance now that's being leaked again? You know, that's very. If they're talking about, if U.S. officials are telling CNN about surveillance of a U.S. person and his communications with people abroad, that's not criminal. That is absolutely criminal but there are people who are so think about the mindset here so devoted to smearing this president and taking him down that they will risk going to prison so devoted to destroying this presidency and ending the political wave of trumpism that they will violate their oaths and the law and the trust of the american people they will do all those things intentionally and i think repeatedly I, I think that you're by the way when we talk about the the deep state and today's a day where the deep state has struck back um i'm 
of the mind that it's just a handful of former highly placed individuals and maybe one or two who are still lurking somewhere in this government. I, I don't think that this is coming from a lot of people. Most government employees, especially ones on the national security side, they just want to do their job, get their check and go home. Honestly, uh, very I, I can tell you from my time uh, working both at the uh, NYPD, NYPD and the CIA, uh, the people just want to show up, do their jobs and go home. They're, they're not looking to call up the press and cause problems for the White House and risk their careers and possibly even their freedom in the process. They, they're not looking to do that. That is a rarity. And it, it's not I'm not even trying to suggest that there's a lot of Trump Trump supporters in government, in the national security agencies. But there are very few people that care enough about this, in my estimation, based on my own experience, to take these kinds of actions. That doesn't mean that they're not really damaging, but I'm just saying I think you're looking at a, at a handful of people that are responsible for a majority of the really damaging leaks. Because, by the way, once you've become a Trump, an anti-Trump zealot and put this stuff out there once— you know, you might as you might as well just keep going, right? I mean, once you've decided that you will uh, leak sensitive FBI uh, information or whatever the whatever the classified information may be to hurt Trump or hurt some of his people, you know, once you've done it, you know, I can see people doing it again and again. Just hope they don't get caught because if you get caught once, it's bad enough. I mean, if you get caught for leaking once, you might as well get caught for leaking three times with the way this stuff works. And the penalties are so severe that, you know, hey. So I, I just I also can't think that this is all coincidence. I, I refuse to believe that you have all these leaks meant to bring up the sore points uh, currently of the investigation and and meant to go for this administration's. I shouldn't say Achilles heel because I think they will get through it. But this is the point of attack. This is the way the media goes after Trump and his people. It is by. Uh, bringing up Russia and by just surmising, by analyzing, by coming up with different variations of, you know, well, what what could they find out here? You know, what maybe is going to what maybe is going to be the result of this investigation? No need to wait for the investigation to play out. No need to wait for facts. Just figure, you know, in time. No one will remember the crazy charges of treason and all the other stuff that's been said. And man, all these former Watergate special prosecutors and f- other s- former special prosecutors bouncing around the media now. <sighs> they should have never let this happen. The American people deserve better. I mean, this, this administration is spending so much time, the president's spending so much time dealing with this. It's just nonsense. And, and it's also, and I, I want to, I was going to go to a break, but I just wanted to establish this before we do that. Uh, it's also really offensive. Uh, It's offensive to me that there are so many, in my business, certainly in the media, including people I know and have worked with, who think that individuals like me, who don't believe that there was any Russia collusion, who think that this is all just a political fight that's being played out through the prosecutor's office, or in this case, the special prosecutor's office, which I just always object to in principle. I, I think it's a terrible thing when you settle political arguments by trying to throw somebody else in prison. That is banana republic stuff. That is third world tin pot dictatorship nonsense. And you've got the entire media that that's that they would celebrate. I mean, there would be cheering and clapping at CNN and MSNBC and ABC and CBS and you name it. If Trump or one of his top people 
were thrown in prison. I mean, they would cheer for that. They'd be really happy. They'd think that they had done something really great you know, for this country, or at least for themselves. They don't think about the country. They really only think about themselves. But I find it offensive that there are so many in the media who believe, and so many Democrats, and just so many people. Forget about even putting categorizations on it. Just people in this country who seem to think that if someone like me or someone like you really believe that the president had engaged in illegal behavior and aided and abetted Russia in some scheme to steal the election, that we that we would not want to know that and we wouldn't be okay. I mean, we, we would be okay with that. It's offensive, you know, that that I would be okay with with treason if that were in fact what happened. That's offensive. What I'm offended by, though, are allegations against a president that are not founded in the in the facts, that are not tethered to reality and that are just really ultimately all of this it's just a form of being sore losers they're just such sore losers they're such babies after eight years of obamaism after eight years of all of their uh, preconceived notions and political biases and their worldview their view of this country just being magnified and being elevated uh, and by by that president, by the president and by the top Democrats and the media all around him. After years of that, they can't handle this new reality. They're they're having a disconnect from reality because they cannot handle it. What do you think about these leaks, about what's come out today? Do you think I'm right about the timing, by the way, that this was intentional? This was supposed to get this get the discussion off of immigration at a point system and uh, force us back to Russia, Russia, Russia. For those of you listening, that even some uh, Democrats who actively hate Trump uh, have been vocal about how leaking a presidential phone uh, phone call transcript like this—it's just—it's just reckless. It's just reckless. There's no, there's no justification for it. It's not okay, and it just shows you the, the depths of the hatred and also just how how dirty the other side will play. Uh, Joe in Georgia on WMCD. What's going on, Joe? Hey, what's going on? Hey. Hey, hey so uh, I just called in. You got some good points. I'm a libertarian, uh, so my issue with this is is not for now, but long term. So I was kind of curious what your ideas were on the fact that when a Democrat takes president, is Republicans going to do the exact same thing? And I know they don't have the media backing as what Democrats typically have, but this is you know a slippery slope of of going back and forth and really having a quasi-coup or a media coup or just kind of null and void. So I, I don't doubt that there's a closed-door closed deal or talk or discussion that's saying, hey, if we can't get him in prison, the best we can do is null and void his four years. Just, so so you're asking me if I think that the next Democrat will get the same treatment or will have the same problems? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, uh, I, I don't think that's that. Well, well there are a couple of reasons, and I, you touched on one of them, which is that the— uh, the media still has a very big megaphone, and they all are – look, they're they're 90 percent Democrats. Even 90 percent Democrat media out there still, even with Fox and talk radio and some other platforms to get out an alternative point of view. Uh, so they don't – and Republicans will never have that. They certainly will not have that for the next Democrat presidency. And then um, – and you add to that that the Democrats also understand – that they'll do whatever they have to do in order to maintain power and stay in power. And so that's why, you know, you, you could have had uh, in investigations. You, know, you, you could have had a special counsel 
to look into Hillary's emails. You could have had a special counsel to look into Benghazi. You could have had a special counsel to look into Fast and Furious, right? I mean, these are all areas where Attorney General Eric Holder and Attorney General Loretta Lynch, they just shut it down. They just, they just made sure that nothing was going to happen. So that's why you don't have Democrats in the same position, because when they're in charge, they protect their own. When we're in charge, we have a lot of Republicans who are kind of, you got to obey the rules. And it's like, well, do we, do we have to obey the rules all the time? Because, you know, the, the rules sometimes can be a little murky. Sometimes it's a judgment call. And Jeff Sessions recusing himself and also uh, the appointment of a special counsel by the deputy attorney general, that's, that's bad judgment, in my opinion. I agree. I, I think 2018 is going to show a lot of things. And uh, yeah, I definitely agree. I appreciate your radio. Thanks. Thanks, man. Thanks, Joe. Um, all right. We got Ann in Virginia on the line. Hey, Ann, what's up? Hello. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for calling in. iHeart app. I like it. <laughs> um, what I called about is, you know, I'm trying to love this president because I told you he's increased my portfolio 20 grand. But how do you spend? <laughs> we do. We don't talk about money in the Freedom Hut ad, but go ahead. <laughs> How do you defend his uh, alleged calls never took place to the president of Mexico, the head of the Boy Scouts? How do you defend that? Uh, well, I don't. I don't think that he said that he never spoke to the president of Mexico, did he? He said he talked to the president of Mexico. Yeah. So what's the problem? He didn't. What do you mean he didn't? Never happened. The phone transcript is, well, I don't know, what are you saying? I'm saying that he's lied about these two phone calls. But what is the lie? Because, I mean, you've got a transcript of him on the phone with the president of Mexico, and you're saying he didn't speak to the president of Mexico. What? I don't know that, really. Yeah. Is it a transcript? Yeah, that's what the leak is today. Oh, okay. How yeah. about the Boy Scout? <laughs> okay. I don't know. Well, what's the Boy Scout? You'll have to tell me that one, but I gotta, I'm got i going to have to fact check you on this one. Ed. What's the Boy Scout phone call? He claims that he heard from the head of the Boy Scouts, and he didn't. Okay. Well, assuming that that's true, and uh, – uh, Assuming that that is true, um, I think people would just say that who cares? Uh, the president has a, the president has a problem with unimportant facts. Sometimes I think that's fair to say. Um, well, what really what are we going focus. to do? Well, why should we care? And by the way, are, are, are we going to pretend that politicians lying is something new? I mean, at least you know, at least this is now. Uh, a president who we all kind of know where we stand, so to speak. Like right? we we know what to expect. Uh, you know, there and there are big lies and little lies. So anyway, that's that's what I've got on this end. I don't, I've got to look into uh, more of the Trump uh, phone calls and, and whether he lied about them or not. But I'll also say that no one really, you know, I, I don't think anyone cares all that much. I just don't think it really gets anyone particularly energized, uh, other than he people who hate Trump. Yeah, you can't lie to Boy Scouts. Yeah, no, I don't know. Anyway, thanks, Ann. Uh, so where are we now? Um, I have not enough time to go into our Oh, here we go. Uh, Mark in Florida. Good to have you on, sir. What's up? 
Wow, very cool. That's awesome. Listen, I just wanted to say I'm sitting here, and I love your show. I'm, I'm on St. George Island, Florida, and uh, listening to 9845 Panama City, and I'm just so happy that your show's on to replace the last one. So, Thank, you for, support, thank you for supporting my show, man. You've got, great, you've got a great taste in, in shows that you listen to now. I appreciate it. Keep on going. All right, I'll keep it simple, and I'll, and I'll hang up, and I'll wait for your response. In short, I'm a retired military member, and I can stay after 21.85 years or whatever with mandatory training that just eats so many man hours that aren't even accounted for in the budget. Anyway, any E-2 in the military has to sign an agreement every year that they understand information and what you do or do not do with it. And I just want to know, what is going on in the White House where this sensitive information can just be transmitted willy-nilly? Mark, the answer is that people people know about that, that they understand what they're doing is against the rules and is uh, is endangering national security, but they do it anyway because they think it's more important to oppose Trump. I think that's the, I really do think that's the answer. Scary, man. We've never been here in history before. You know? it, is, it, is, it is kind of scary. I agree with you, man. Shield time, Mark. Thank you for your service. Thank you for calling in. Sean Spicer is not going to join Dancing with the Stars. That's some news that I just found out about. Makes me sad. Spicy's not going to be doing his spicy thing. I think I'm sure he would have been good. You know, he could have worn a suit that was about a, a size too big and, uh, you know, done this. Th- I don't know. It just it would have worked, I think. But what a shame. Uh, But on to more interesting, serious, and necessary discussions. Uh, We have President Trump in West Virginia, and in a matter of moments, at least uh, officially that's what we're told, in a matter of moments, the the president will be taking the stage in West Virginia. And he's also saying that there will be a big announcement at this rally. I'm sure that's going to be a classic Classic Trump rally. The media hates this, by the way. You see, so they've got all their deep state leaks today, right? And and they put those out there. And then uh, the Trump administration, the, the president can just go out and give a speech, fire, fire up his uh, supporters. And tomorrow, you know, and, unless you're already drinking the, the, the CNN and MSNBC uh, Kool-Aid, and it, unless you've decided that you somehow are buying into this whole Russia collusion thing, uh, you won't care tomorrow. So Trump has the ability to reset the media narrative in a way that no other president, no other president does, um, and or has been able to, I should say. Uh, he's going to be at this rally. Well, he's going to be, of course, the main event of the rally, but there will also be a big announcement. It's expected to be that West Virginia Governor Jim Justice is is expected to switch his party affiliation to join to leave the Democrat party and join the Republican party. So, okay. Uh we will bring you some of that rally in Huntington, West Virginia live here on the show as it hits just cuz you know, if we're going to be talking about politics and Trump and America and what's going on here, we can get into a bit of the Trump rally. Now, some uh, very interesting stuff in the aftermath of the after-action report, if you will, from that exchange between White House senior White House advisor Stephen Miller and Jim Acosta. We played some of it for you yesterday. It was, I, it was uh, great TV for sure, 
but it was also really interesting to watch it play out in real time, the two sides of this debate. On the one side, you have the, but I love immigrants, and I just love everybody, and I'm so great, and I'm just, you know, I just, it's, we, we just want the most diverse and multicultural place imaginable, which means open borders, basically, but I just love everybody, and I just want to be so, uh, so loving, and I'm so sanctimonious at the same time. And Stephen Miller like, well, look, that's not what the law says. That's not what the history of this country has been when it comes to immigration. That's not a reasonable position to take, and you don't know what you're talking about. That's a, I think that's a pretty decent summary of how the two sides uh, came off yesterday. But you had uh, Acosta, of course, trying to do—you know, this is the, this is the thing, right? It's, it's like when you watch a lot of these televised debates— and I'm astonished sometimes because I'll say, well, any reasonable person will think that so-and-so came off looking like a, like a clown or a buffoon. But it, it really depends on your point of view sometimes. You'll, uh, you'll have people—you know, you know what's a perfect, uh, a perfect example of this is I remember seeing uh, on Sean Hannity's TV show on Fox a few times, uh, Anjum Chowdhury, who I think has gotten into some, uh, some legal trouble, right, recently? I forget— uh, but Anjum Chowdhury, who is this preacher in the UK, was always talking about Sharia for the UK. And I mean, Hannity would Hannity would let him speak, and then Hannity would just be like, you know, you're you're a, you're a terrorist, you're an idiot, you're terrible, you're the worst, and all all good points from Sean. But I was like, why would Chowdhury? Why would this guy go on a show and say such dumb things and get so pummeled? You know, and, and Sean is just. Just was just hammering him on the show, as I would, as as anybody, you know, in that position who is not some Islamist crazy uh, theocrat would. And then I found out from from somebody I knew over at Fox that, well, but you have to remember that to Chowdhury's followers, he's doing a great job. When he when he talks about how women need to be subjugated and, you know, Sharia for the UK is the only way and all this stuff, his followers think that's great. They, they don't care what they don't care what the host of the show says. They don't care that he's being called a terrorist or whatever. They, they think that he's, he's right. He's great. So for his supporters, he's just taking the heat for what they believe in. And I think with Acosta, you have a, a similar phenomenon where he could get so completely so completely smacked around. I mean, it was Stephen Miller gave Acosta a buck slap, and that could happen in that way. And then Acosta could decide that he would— uh, pretend like he had gotten the better of that exchange, which is what happened, uh, which is what happened uh, today. Um, here's, what he, here's what he had to say about it. You know, an unskilled person who doesn't speak English coming into America might give birth to a Nobel laureate or an astrophysicist uh, or a neurosurgeon. And so, that, I mean, that is what has always been great about America, in my view. And I was just, you know, essentially trying to test uh, Stephen Miller on a couple of those points. And, and I think what you saw unfold in the briefing room is that he really just couldn't yeah. take that kind of heat and exploded before our eyes. Nope. And that is the opposite. That is the opposite of reality. Uh, and yet, that's the way Acosta comes away from. It. By the way, we got Trump speaking live now in West Virginia. We're going to go to it. I am thrilled to be back in the very, very beautiful state of West Virginia, and I am proud to stand before you and celebrate the hardworking people who are the absolute backbone of America. Thank you. 
I love the people of this state. I love your grit, your spirit, and I love our coal miners, and they're coming back strong. I made you a promise during the campaign. You all remember, many of you were here. I actually think we have more people here tonight with thousands outside than we had during the campaign, if you can believe it. And as you've seen, I've kept that promise. As president, we are putting our coal miners back to work. We've ended the war on beautiful, clean coal. We've stopped the EPA intrusion. American coal exports are already up. Think of this. Think of this. American exports of coal are already up more than 60% this year. Do you ever hear of anything like that? The change you voted for is happening every single day. Everyone in this great arena is united by shared values. We believe in God. We believe in family. We believe in country. We support the Constitution of the United States of America. We cherish and defend the Second Amendment. We believe schools should teach students to love our country, to have pride in our history, and to respect our great American flag. We stand with the incredible men and women of law enforcement. Thank you. We believe strongly that a nation must defend and protect its borders. And above all else, we believe that we must take care of our own citizens and put America first. So we got Donald Trump speaking in West Virginia there, um, talking to, uh, to, well, talking about coal miners, and he's, of course, in coal country there. And I remember when Hillary had some problems with uh, with West Virginia, with coal miners during her campaign. She had, pro- had problems with a lot of people. But she had a lot of problems when it came to coal miners because just didn't just didn't doesn't really care about their plight because you know climate change costa was doing the rounds today on tv saying that you know he, he thought he brought the heat and he won that exchange with stephen miller when you're citing a a poem uh, that was added to the statue of liberty as somehow a debate winner uh, and and citing it as though it has the force of law y- you are not winning the debate uh, I, that is that is fair to say uh but he, he went even further than that acosta was saying that the White House, that this White House is, of course, all about bigotry and hate and goes after certain groups in particular. I think at times this White House has an unhealthy fixation on what I call the three M's, the Mexicans, the Muslims, and the media. Uh, Their policies tend to be crafted around 
bashing one of those three groups, and we just see it time and again. And today on immigration, what the White House is, is essentially saying in a wink and a dog whistle uh, to some of these battleground states that they won is that immigrants coming in from Latin America are taking your jobs. Immigrants coming in from any number of places are taking jobs. And I remember when uh, I was filling in for Rush Limbaugh and one of the stories that I tackled on the show had to do with people at Disney who were losing their jobs for those who were coming in on H-1B visas to and, and that Disney was forcing uh, these people, these Americans, to train their replacements. But somehow that wasn't a violation of the H-1B visa program. It's just crazy what goes on. But it happens. It happens all the time. Uh, I should also note that you, know, you see Acosta slipping in here that the White House goes after Muslims, Mexicans and the media as though the media, as though people like Jim Acosta, who I mean, I don't know what Acosta makes. I'm going to guess they pay him a million dollars a year, maybe, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. But I'm, I'm going to guess they, they pay him seven figures to wear a suit, not know very much, go on TV and just. Get, get, say the most superficial uh, liberal Democrat talking points and do some reporting, which the, the funny thing about being a reporter is it's it's like being an actor. It's a job that anyone can do, but actually not very many people can do well. But yeah, I'm sure he gets paid something like that. And that's that's all well and good. I guess that's what the market will bear. At least that's what the bosses at CNN will pay him. Uh, but I, I have to say, you're not a victimized. Uh, you're not a victimized, marginalized group if you're in the media. Yeah. If you write for the New York Times and are getting paid a couple hundred grand to hang out in your pajamas or sit in the newsroom and, and you know write some stuff, you're not. A, you're not in deep duress. You know. You're not some marginalized group. I just think it's funny that he puts the media in with. Oh yeah, it's so hard to be a Joe Scarborough. I mean, you know, a guy's getting paid like five or six million a year. And, you know, just really seems like he's very worried about how many uh, pastel shirts he can match with his his polo sweaters and how much time he gets to spend with Mika, you know, on vacation. I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a hard life is what I'm trying to say. We, we, we don't need to worry about the media people that Trump has been bashing. Oh, no, what's going to happen? Uh, it's just so funny. Oh, man. The worst. I tell you this. and I know I'm a radio host. I'm sitting here doing media as I tell you this. But the, the, just the worst people are in media, really. It's just full of the worst people. You should know that. A lot of very dishonest, terrible people. And usually a good indicator of how terrible somebody is in the media is can they just, can they just not let it, let it go? Even if they've had a great run, made millions, they, but they, they can't stop. Like, they're the only person in the country who can either read off a teleprompter or ask basic questions in an interview. You know, it has to be me. You get a lot of that. The media people are terrible. Speaking of terrible media people, all right, let's get back into uh, uh, what uh, Acosta said here about his exchange with Miller because I found it very, very uh, interesting, illuminating in terms of mindset here. I quoted the Statue of Liberty to Stephen Miller. It was odd to see the White House wolf uh, in the form of Stephen Miller, one of the top policy advisors, uh, sort of sound like a Statue of Liberty originalist, as if there's some difference between what the Statue of Liberty looked like uh, when it was first brought over here to the United States and, and what uh, and what it looks like now with a poem attached to it. I just thought that was an odd moment. It was just a poor argument. And whenever they're bashing the media wolf, my, my sense always is, is that they're just losing the argument. No, 
No, in fact, bashing the media is one of the most important things that the administration does. Um, fighting back against the media. And that what they seem to forget is that we were, we were at least, you know, anyone who's having this conversation was alive during the Obama years. And we remember what the media was like then. So, so we will not be talked down to. We will not be lectured now by those exact, not just those same organizations, the same people who were completely complicit quizlings in everything that Obama was doing, including the lies, including if you like your health care plan, you can keep it, including uh, the top cover given by the administration for Black Lives Matter and riots and calling them protesters, even as they were burning things down and throwing rocks at, at police officers. I mean, you know, we, we saw the way the media bent over backwards. We saw what they did. So we, we don't need to uh, or rather, we can remind ourselves of what, oh, wow, I'm actually just, you know, there's some the Trump rally that's going on and there is some uh, real nasty physical stuff going on in the in the stands at one of the, at the Trump rally in West Virginia. Someone's getting arrested and there's a lot of shoving. And, uh, you know, just what is the mentality of showing up at a rally with 15,000 people and getting into a fight with somebody, you know, and, and, and getting escorted out or standing up and shouting so the police have to drag you out? really that childish? I mean, I think it's some kind of disorder. The, the this It's the same disorder that's like, I, I'm going to spend days on end uh, protesting and yelling at people over for no reason uh, on an issue that nobody cares about. That's like the code pink, I'm going to show up and scream, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can kind of hear it in the back on C-SPAN sometime. There'll be a bunch of centers like, well, you know, we got to talk about this thing over here. You'll hear it in the background, you know, code pink shrieking about something. What do they think is being accomplished? I, I guess what's accomplished is I sit here and make fun of Code Pink, so we all know what they are. But you know, Acosta is uh, is in another is in another universe if he thinks that he looked like he knew what he was talking about yesterday. And uh, the by the way, I, I will note and I will uh, hat tip uh, Ben Shapiro for this one because I really liked. And you know, we have Ben on the show uh, regularly. Uh, I really like this this one tweet that he put out today because I was thinking about it yesterday. I mean, this is this encapsulates the sentiment I think very well, and that is that for for the left. Wait, I want to make I want to get it actually exactly right here. Where did it go? Ah, I'm trying to get there. Um, he was saying that you know that basically the the Emma Lazarus poem is has the force of law, but the Constitution. Oh, here we go. In the left's America, Emma Lazarus's poem on the Statue of Liberty is to be read literally as law, but the Constitution is vague poetry. Totally, totally agree with him. Uh, that's Ben Shapiro. Totally agree. Um, and that's why it's even more jaw-dropping when you see somebody like this guy, uh, Meacham, who's an author. He's actually written a bunch of biographies. I'm ashamed to say that I was reading one of his biographies and saw him on TV and was so annoyed by him and find him so... Uh, so smarmy and and sort of calmly condescending that I just was like, I'm not reading this guy's book anymore. I'm sorry that I paid for it, and I'm sorry that I'm reading it. Uh, I'll find some, you know, there's a lot of biographies on presidents. I'll find another one. Uh, but he was on MSNBC, and this is what he was saying. John, were you in on this uh, conspiracy? The poem clearly added later. Does all that huddled masses stuff, have we been needing to do that all these years? 
Well, my question is, can I get up on that space station? You know, is there a shuttle uh, available at this point? Um, the poem was added later. Uh, this strikes me a little bit uh, as a history by Google uh, argument from the White House. Uh, uh, Emma Lazarus wrote the poem to raise money for the Statue of Liberty. Uh, it was put on about uh, 20 years later, uh, and has been fused as a symbol of liberty and immigration. Uh, I don't think you can celebrate liberty without celebrating immigration. We are, in fact, a, a nation uh, and almost entirely of immigrants. I think what today shows us is that there is a perennially ambivalent relationship uh, with immigration in the American experience that begins with—and let's go ahead and mention our first dead president—John uh, uh, Adams, uh, who passed the Alien right. Act. So, so uh, James the, the point I want to make here is, first of all, so he's defending that stupidity over the Lazarus poem as though that means something. It means nothing. Uh, and this is a guy who's like a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, right? But even more—he goes with this, we're a nation of immigrants. We are not a nation of immigrants. I mean, there are plenty of great immigrants in this country, but this is a line they keep repeating as though, you know, we're all immigrants. No, that's not true. Well, it's official now. Trump is at a rally in West Virginia, and the governor of West Virginia, whom I believe is a billionaire like Trump, yay, uh, go capitalism, uh, Jim Justice, he just announced that he is switching parties as of tomorrow. He says that... Quote, I'll tell you, as West Virginians, I can't help you anymore being a Democrat governor. So he says he's going to become a Republican as of tomorrow. So there, yeah, that was the big that was the big announcement. We got another Republican governor to add on to the list. Republican Party is looking pretty good right now across the country. Uh, we have Bree Payton on the line. She is a culture and millennial politics reporter for the Federalist. Bree, great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. Always good to talk to you, Buck. You too. So, uh, let's start with your piece of the Federalist. Don't blame mooching millennials like me for Obamacare's failures. 20-somethings <laughs> mooching off. Is this because of the mooch, by the way? You got two mooches in one title. Uh, you know what? Probably subconsciously, right? Yeah. The, I mean, the mooch has taken over every, took over everyone's subconscious for a day or two. I've got to say, it's one of the first times I've walked in this radio show, and, and I, you know, the day of the rant when that was publicized, and all I could think is, there's no way there's no way that this is normal, right? Like there's no way this stands. So it's a crazy day. Anyway, but back to back to Obamacare and mooching millennials. You say that basically mooching millennials aren't the problem. Staying on their staying on their parents' insurance is not the problem. Tell us why. Sure. So I myself, as I talked about in this piece, um, I myself am a twenty five year old who is still enrolled under my parents' uh, health insurance plan, and I'm planning to do so until I turn twenty six and get kicked off. Um, and so my piece that I wrote was in response to a piece that we published by Chris Jacobs, who is criticizing uh, Tommy Laren, who's around the same age as me, um, for doing the exact same thing that I'm doing and said, this is what's wrong with Obamacare, right? Like, she's obviously a very well-paid uh, pundit. I mean, we all know that she has an exorbitant clothing wardrobe, among other benefits, and we can assume probably got a hefty salary. Um, from her previous job before. So, you know, why is this individual, you know, why is she able to mooch off of her parents' insurance? Clearly, this is the reason why Obamacare is failing, because there's dumb little provisions like that, right? And my piece in response to him was saying, yeah, you're right. You know, I, although I don't get the exorbitant clothing <laughs> budget that she does, you know, I am able to care for myself uh, fiscally, right? So, yeah, I could see why, you know, people would be critical of me 
staying under my parents' health insurance plan. But at the same time, like from the perspective of someone my age or someone Tommy's age, you know, why would we wade into the disaster of the individual marketplace that exists today when we don't have to for another year, right? I mean, the individual marketplace, as I outlined in my piece, is such a mess right now. A lot of Americans in a lot of counties simply don't even have an insurance option, right? I think there's something like 35,000 Americans who don't aren't even able to purchase insurance on the individual market. Um, and, you know, that's kind of just what I was talking about, that a lot of millennials are staying on their parents' health insurance plans as long as they possibly can because the marketplace is such a mess because of the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, I, I remember being in my 20s and, and going for a short period without insurance and and having to deal with getting uh, getting uh, sick was was not fun at all. I can tell you that when you when you actually have to navigate the healthcare system as a young person uh, without yeah. health insurance and without being able to be on your parents' health insurance and without having any money or savings because you've just gotten out of college, it is not it is not a cool experience. I can tell everybody that when all of a sudden a doctor is like, "Well, that's going to be," and you just get the bill that they want to give you, it's it's insane how expensive it is. Yeah. And, you know, another part of that, too, the reason why health insurance has become so expensive, I mean, someone like you or someone like me, we're young, pretty healthy. I mean, I just need insurance for in case I get into a car accident or if I develop some cancer that I'm unaware of, right? I mean, I really just need it for catastrophic coverage. But Obamacare strips away any chance of young people being able to get that kind of catastrophic coverage because of the essential health benefits that uh, it mandates insurers provide. No, in right? fact, and the government a- makes you, Bree, subsidize older, sicker people well, the right. moment that That's you step into the individual itself. marketplace. You are subsid- yeah. You are a subsidizer. You are not a subsidizee. And that's yeah. that's fine. So that's why, look, I mean, I, I agree with you that the uh, that, that looking at, first of all, the, the cost of young people staying on their parents' plans is is very low com- comparatively to some of these other issues that come up with Obamacare, because generally speaking, young people don't have a lot of health problems. So, you know, most 23, 24, 25 year old Americans uh, you know, are not doing dialysis. They're not going through incredibly expensive, <laughs> continuous treatment. Right. So uh, right. that that's all a part of this. But uh, we're speaking to Brie Payton, everybody. She's the culture millennial politics reporter for The Federalist. Now let's talk about angry feminists. Angry feminists can't figure out why nobody likes feminists anymore. Brie, you wrote this on The Federalist. I want to know why. Yeah. So uh, people don't like feminists anymore because feminists aren't about, they aren't about empowering women, right? They're about enforcing a dogma, enforcing uh, a political set of beliefs. And if you tend to try to defer from that, or delineate from, you know, the mantra that they're trying to push on you, they're going to jump all over you and attack you, right? And what I'm talking about specifically is a lot of feminists reacted really strongly to the Democratic uh, Party's announcement that they aren't going to totally withhold funds from candidates who are pro-life, right? And so feminists like Jill, uh, I can never say her last name, but I think it's like Filipovic or something. Filipovic, yeah. Yeah, Anyway, her and Lauren Duga and a couple others, they, you know, came out on Twitter and they were like, oh, this is such a betrayal to any woman who has ever voted or cast a vote in favor of the Democratic Party. Like the fact that this party would be fine with financially supporting the pro-life candidates. And this kind of behavior, you know, we've seen time and time again from women like that who are really hardcore feminists. 
um, you know, this whole notion that if you're a woman, you have to be pro-choice, right? And if you're a pro-life woman, then you are like betraying the sisterhood or something like that. Um, so just that kind of behavior I find really frustrating and I think is part of the reason why two-thirds of women in America don't identify as a feminist. Feminists also have no sense of humor, I will note. You cannot get away with making jokes because they're, they all buy into intersectionality, which for those listening is a is a p- approach to everything based on various inter intersecting groups of oppression. And so it makes society a zero sum between different groups that are all trying to oppress each other. That that doesn't leave a lot yeah. of room for fun. Not, not a lot of fun jokes can be made when that's how you think of life. Yeah, I mean, you know, today a teen Vogue writer um, basic wrote this column uh, saying that if you use gifts uh, with black people in them and you are not black, then you're per- you're basically you know you're, you're basically racist. racist, right? Yeah. And by the way, and a it, gif is like a little short black- video, everybody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So she basically said that if you tweet out a gif, like if I tweet out a gif of Beyonce, then I am you know like perpetuating or committing blackface is what she is saying. I mean, and that kind of goes to your point, right? That this kind of worldview or lens or obsession rather with intersectionality, right? Really, I mean, gifts aren't even safe anymore, right? If you're using the wrong gift, um, you're a total racist and are basically a KKK member to, in their mind. Uh, the, the left it has no sense of humor and, and feminists are about as unfunny as anybody can be on the left. But yet still, it's uh, you have all these you know women's and gender studies classes and colleges. It, it, it continues on as a discipline. I, I just don't understand why why any young women today, uh, Brie, are are drawn to this. That's what that's what always baffles me. What is it about somebody that they say, you know what, I, I really want to watch Lena Dunham TV shows and attend these uh, gender studies courses where they are inherently anti-male, which is a question of how, how much they're anti-male, and there's nothing learned that is worthwhile. It's all, it's all just a, uh, a big pity party. <laughs> I mean, in the spirit of fairness, I do like to watch girls. Oh, I my gosh. Yeah, I do, and I subscribe to Lena Dunham's uh, like weekly newsletter. It's called Lenny Letter. Um, so I do, and I do like that show and i do enjoy reading the newsletter every now and again so i think you know culturally there is you know um there is good culture and there is good content that is coming out of people who identify as feminists but i do think that it is laced with this kind of earnest tryhardness that does tend to get annoying, right? And as we talked about, I mean, telling people that you're racist if you use the wrong gift, I mean, that's just so far out of the extreme, right? And at one point in time, I did identify as a feminist, right? Because in my mind... You did? Okay, how how did that happen? So you're coming to us from the other side. I didn't realize. Well, okay, I was coming at it from the perspective of, oh, feminism is just that men and women should be equal, right? That was my conception of feminism, and that's what I thought it was. Um, But then I quickly learned that, you know, that's not really what it is, right? It's that um, not only are we supposed to be equal, but we are supposed to get these little special treatments and special brownie points, right? I guess my first experience— Yeah, I mean, are, are are guys supposed to pay for dinner at least on the first date? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, okay. I Wait, you're not going to answer that question? Different. Inquiring minds want to know across America right now. They're wondering, does a guy have to pay for dinner on the first date? 
I think he should. You know, I think, like, the first three days, the guy should. And then after that, you can take turns, right? Because I think it's also kind of rude and or selfish if you're a woman and you just expect him to pay for everything all the time, right? Like, that's, that's crazy. But if you let him pay the first two or three times just to be like, oh, you know, I'm thoughtful, then I think that that's considerate and nice. And then you can kind of figure out a way of taking turns for one another, right? Because in a relationship, the point of it is to like love one another. And I think when you are loving one another, you are like looking out for the other person's interests and needs. And I think like when you're looking out for the other person's needs and interests, then you don't necessarily have to cover your own. Right. So I think what that looks like in terms of taking the check is, you know, you kind of fight over it and take turns letting the other person um, pay for it. Yeah, but the guy is still supposed to pay. You know, that's that's yeah, it. He's supposed to hold the door, and he's supposed to pay everybody. That's where, <laughs> that's where we're getting. But anyway, Bree, we really appreciate you coming by the hut to hang out. Bree Payton, everybody, check out our latest on thefederalist.com. She's a reporter at the Federalist. Bree, come back soon. Awesome. Yes, have me back. R- return for a second to uh, the debate that broke out after the the Acosta Miller throwdown. Uh, you had on CNN last night, uh, they have a pundit, uh, Anna Navarro, who is uh, uh, allegedly a Republican. I mean, was, I think, uh, is close with the Bush family or something or, you know, worked with Jeb. Or I don't know. I don't know her background. I don't really care. Um, but is, is one, I can tell you, rude in person um, and, and says cartoonishly stupid things on a regular basis. One of my favorites was actually when she was in the Bill Maher show and was calling out uh, Trump for be, uh, how how Trump, unlike Bush, was only who he was because of his dad, and, and I'm like, well, mm. but anyway, that was that was quite a, a groan. That was there was a groan from the audience over that one, as there should have been. Uh, but yeah, she says really dumb things and is rude, so I don't mind saying that. And she was uh, on CNN last night talking to Jeffrey Lord, who's the favorite pro-Trump punching bag on CNN. I'm, I'm sure he's a nice guy, but I mean, they, they mistreat him on air all the time. I, I wish yeah, I wish somebody else would give him a job so he wouldn't have to go on TV and have people just constantly ambushing him. But such is life. Um, and here is what uh, Ms. Navarro uh, just said to Mr. Lord here. Jeff, it must be so nice to be a white male. What does that have to do with it? And be able to this. And I think you you just completely missed the point of what makes us wonderful here in America is that I can go celebrate St. Patrick's Day and that you can celebrate Cinco de Mayo or you can celebrate the 15th of September. And that does not define being American. See, a a very like uh, she seems to think what she's saying is smart or relevant, but it's not. What does that have to do with anything? What makes us great in America is that we can go to each other's uh, ethnic parades. Okay, why does that mean that a skill-based immigration system or a point-based immigration system that privileges certain skills for the purpose of contributing more quickly and more efficiently to the U.S. economy for the benefit of citizens here, what does that have? No, it has nothing to do with it, right? She just goes on TV, though, and yells at people and... Has a con, you know has a constituency that supports her I guess and she's a, a rabidly anti-Trump so just you know you should keep that in mind too uh, but you saw a lot of this um, and I should also note he, he, this is part of the problem is that somebody he, at CNN you can be called out for being a white male on TV and that's okay just imagine for a moment that a white male did that to anyone who was not a white male right 
well, you know, you you clearly got where you are because, you know, you're a you're a female, you know, Inuit or something, right? I mean, you know, isn't that the proper term now for es- Eskimo? We're not supposed to say anymore Inuit. Anyway, I'm probably going to get an angry email from an Eskimo somewhere. I know we have. I mean, I I love our folks uh, up north who listen to the show. But I'm just trying to pick a group that's not going to be controversial. The point I'm making here is that only a white male can get called out for being a white male at CNN, and that's supposed to be okay. Like, it's some kind of argument under. In fact, I had the uh, very telling experience of being on CNN and having a a socialite and a very uh, wealthy uh, Palestinian woman to tell me that my opinion on how to deal with counterterrorism, despite having worked for the CIA's counterterrorism center, despite serving in Iraq and Afghanistan, as well as some other places that to this day I haven't been, that I'm aware of, able to talk to you about uh, on the air. But maybe one day I'll see if I can get clearance for it. Um, But that was all irrelevant, right? Because I was a white male and not a Muslim. And I thought it was fascinating because that was said to me at a table by a Muslim woman who was a socialite named Rula Jabral posing as a foreign policy expert. The host did nothing to uh, to sort of calm that down. In fact, wouldn't let me really respond. They rushed us into a break, wouldn't let me return to the subject after the break. And I thought it was fascinating because one of CNN's supposed terrorism experts, who's a white guy who, as far as I know, is definitely not Muslim and has never served in a war zone that I'm aware of. Uh, nor have any professional experience of actually dealing with counterterrorism cases or counterterrorism operations as I have. And she wouldn't say it to him, right? So it's really if you're a white male Republican. That can be that can be used to shut down the discussion. Like, well, your opinion on this is irrelevant because you're a white male. I mean, and, you know, that's it was such a snide thing for uh, Navarro to say on CNN. But like I said, she's she's among the dumbest pundits on TV. Among the very dumbest, I mean, really, and, and is loud and gets a lot of airtime, among the dumbest that I've come across. And I've, I know a lot of them. I've dealt with a lot of them. You know, and, and I'm not, I'm uh, very honest about this. You know, I'll, I will tell you, uh, Van Jones is, is, is a slick guy and is actually very polite, very charming, and wants to be. And he, he is uh, somebody that if you're debating, you got to pay attention. You know, I mean, just because somebody, and he's a Democrat, obviously. Uh, and there are others over there too that you know you better you better know what you're doing. You better bring your your A game if you're going to go into an on air battle against them because they know what's up. Uh, Navarro, who's as I said, no, just ostensibly a Republican, is, is just an imbecile. So you have that. But she gets to call. You know, she gets to speak down to Jeffrey Lord and say, you know, it must be so nice that you're just a, a white male. Um, and yeah, there you have it. It's uh, it's frustrating how things go over there at CNN, even though I don't work there anymore. Have smartphones destroyed a generation? It's a piece up on The Atlantic, which is a left of center, but at least thoughtful magazine. Uh, they have some very good writers and they do some interesting stuff. In fact, it was a piece in The Atlantic a while ago that got a lot of attention, uh, including from many conservatives. I know uh, that was what ISIS really believes. And it went into the apocalyptic end of days, uh, really, theology of the Islamic State. That was in the Atlantic some, uh, I don't know, a few years ago. Uh, but have smartphones destroyed a generation? I uh, find myself wishing sometimes that smartphones could be uninvented. I'll be completely honest with you. Uh, I have problems with people in my day-to-day life who I feel like are completely overwhelmed with the need 
overtaken by the need to be, you know, to, to have their smartphone, to have it out. I, I start to go nuts when people think that it's okay to have it out on the table while we're eating. Like, because it's not enough to have it vibrating in their pocket. They, they need it to be there in front of them all the time. And I know that for some people, they're in such a stressful work situation or they're so on call that, you know, they, they get nervous when they don't have access to their phone. But, you know, we're not all heart surgeons. You know, I mean, let's let's not pretend. You know, we're, we're not all being called in at all hours of the night to save lives or something. I mean, most of us have normal jobs that just require us to be reasonably responsible and uh, somewhat reachable, I suppose, in off hours. But I've, I've been wondering about this. And, you know, I don't have I don't have kids uh, yet. Hoping to at some point uh, in the near-ish, near-ish, not too near, near-ish future. Um, but I, I don't have kids, but I wonder what it's like growing up now as a 12, as a 13-year-old, and having all of these these pressures uh, and having all these having all this access that comes from from a phone. Pressures, I mean, by this the show, the social pressure of your entire. Uh, status as a 12 or a 13 or a 14 year old and this is what the piece is really about uh, it's out there for everyone else to judge and to see and you know i can't imagine i mean i have to tell you this is in in the pre-instagram pre-cell phone era uh, i remember going to an all-boys high school and uh, you know i was i'm not gonna lie i mean i was a reasonable i was a pretty social guy and everything but i found that you could get around the dress code at my all-boys school by wearing a—this is my high school, my Jesuit school. I'd wear a fleece because technically that was an outer garment, and so I could wear a T-shirt underneath it instead of a collared shirt like a button-down. You know, it was my own little rebellion. So as long as I wore that fleece all day indoors, I could do whatever I wanted. And, uh, you know, I wore—I di did wear boat shoes that I will tell you one day my boat shoes actually literally came apart on my walk home and I had to kind of like limp home with shoes that, with, well, with a shoe that had disintegrated. So I wore old beat up boat shoes and, and, uh, and, you know, I sometimes would have, I would have uh, problems with, you know, I had problems with my skin. I'm sure a lot of you, if you think back to your teenage years, you know, I, I would have, uh, I would want to hide my face because it, you know, there would be, uh, there would be issues, you know, the teenager stuff, right? I can't imagine feeling like I need to be constantly, and now I know it's different for guys than it's for girls, but there's pressure on guys too, young, uh, you know, young teenage guys, to be just competing and and being cool. And how many followers do you have? And how many, you know, you know, I, I find it honestly in some ways uh, oppressive enough that in media now this is the expectation that you're supposed to be sharing your every thought every minute of the day. I mean, look, these tools are very powerful and they're great in the proper place, right? I mean, I love that I can read messages from all of you on Facebook. By the way, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Uh, and I, I like that I can post things there and we can have a, you know communication, but I'm not. And those of you following me on Twitter know this. Those of you who are following my Facebook page know this. I'm not somebody who just sits around all day sharing every thought and just sharing every link and share, 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 share. Just desperate for attention. I mean, I spend my time thinking, doing. I spend my time living my life. And also when I'm working, I'm preparing for this show this three hours of my day that i spend with you every or monday through friday at least this is my content these are my thoughts this is what i do and and social media is supplementary to it but it's not and i refuse to to let that take over my normal day-to-day -day life and relationships but for a lot of people especially young people that's become a real thing that's a problem in fact the the data uh, suggests that we have a generation that is in the beginnings of what is a 
Well, here I'll tell you what it says in the piece. Rates of teen depression and suicide have skyrocketed since 2011. It's not an, uh, an exaggeration to describe iGen, those born, I think, like 1996 and later or 2000 and later, uh, to describe iGen as being on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades. Much of this deterioration can be traced to their phones. It's paradoxical, but I know a lot of you listening, and especially if you're in a generation that remembers when you had to call people on a phone if you wanted to talk to them, and it was actually a phone, and, and it was a thing that you had to dial, and if nobody was there, that was it. Like, you couldn't talk to them. Uh, you know, and maybe then you come from the answering machine generation, but some of you, are, I'm sure a lot of you are pre-answering machine generation, right? So uh, you are you grew up in a time when, and really I did too. In fact, people of my age, I'm 35, we're the last, we're the last gasp of, you know, you got to see people, you got to meet people, you got to be out there, you got to go to parties, you got to socialize with your friends. Now it's all digital. It's all the social media world taking over actual socialization and the pressures that come with that. And it comes at such a young age, too. And uh, the sense that everyone's always creating this perception of who they are online that's not really that. Well, that's not realistic. Right. You're only posting. And this I, I see this with the younger people that I know. Uh, in my own life, you know, they're only posting the best photos of themselves all the time. Well, if you if all you see are your friends looking good and having fun and being on vacation, that can start to, if you don't put that in the context of this is clearly a curated experience, that can make people feel badly about themselves. And for young people who don't have the context of, well, one, having lived before all this, so knowing that, you know what, this stuff isn't really all that important, but two... Also, you know, your, your identity and your popularity and your social connections when you're a teenager and that stuff is that, that has a profound impact on how people feel about themselves. It really does. And the also the access for cyberbullying is is just omnipresent now. And we have a whole generation that lives on these phones all the time and that is used to having them. And they're now early teenagers. I'm amazed at how young some people are, by the way, that have iPhones. I mean, I'm reading these stories of, you know, eight and 10 and 12 year olds that have iPhones. I, I can't imagine. I mean, I, I think I got my first cell phone when I was like a senior in high school and it was just a phone. Right. I mean, you could call me, but that was about it. Uh, it's it's amazing how all of this is uh, transforming society. And, you know, ultimately, we have to just be on guard for loneliness. You know, you're, yeah, it's nice to connect you with loved ones and FaceTime, and, and, and I do that all the time, and I'll FaceTime my parents, and that's all great. But human contact and living in the outside world and living in the moment and not allowing these devices to cut you off from the actual reality around you, that's really important. And I think that there's a generation now that needs, really needs parents, their parents, to remind them of that and guide them and make sure that they understand that no matter what, no matter how many Facebook friends you have, no matter how active you are on Twitter, how many followers you have as a, as a teenager or, or anybody for that matter, never really compares to sitting down and being with people that make you feel good, that make you feel um, appreciated and that make you better and that you want to be around. You can, you can Facebook posts as much as you want, but actual human physical contact is something that will never be able to be replicated by any machines. And that's why I think there's this uh, spiraling depression for so many young people because they're so reliant on these phones. 
All right, Team Buck, we always need a little dose of realism and reality from our guests. And here in the Freedom Hut, we've got the one and only David Harsanyi joining us to do just that. He is a senior editor at The Federalist, a nationally syndicated columnist. He's got a bunch of stuff up on The Federalist. He's going to help me make fun of CNN's Jim, Jim Acosta right now. David, good times. Good to have you. Always good to be here. Thanks. Uh, so the Acosta throwdown yesterday. Fabulous television, but also insightful about a much more widespread mindset among journalists and I would say among Democrats. That is what Acosta believes. I think so. I mean, I, I believe they treat immigration as if it were one of the you know, open immigration as if it weren't one of the amendments. You know, it's a sort of right of being an American. I mean, R-I-T-E of being an American is that essentially we exist to bring people here. Now, I'm very pro-immigration, but the idea that we can't ever – uh, you know, tighten restrictions or strictures or come up with some new, you know, rules as to how you come here and what you need to do um, is ridiculous. I'm the child of immigrants, and uh, they followed the rules that were there, and they would have followed any of the rules to be here. So uh, it seems not to me to be un-American or, or anything like that. And yet there's also, I think, a tremendous amount of condescension that comes from many on the left who who seem to think that they are standing up for immigrants when they immediately make the assumption, as so many were. I mean, you had Anna Navarro last night screaming and blathering on like an imbecile, which I think is actually her brand. Like, they should probably put that up on, on her Chiron, but about how a point system is racist. Now, putting aside for a moment that an immigration point system is exactly what Canada has, it's what Australia has, and in fact, Australia has been tightening many of its immigration uh, restrictions in recent years because of concerns that we share about our own immigration system. When you look at what they're saying, it seems to suggest that the moment that there is a competitiveness in the process, non-whites will suffer. That's what the left, that's what Democrats are, are openly stating. You know, the, the non-whites won't speak English as much. Non-whites won't be as competitive academically or won't have the same professional credentials. I mean, there's six billion plus people in the world. I'm pretty sure we can find a lot of people uh, of all different backgrounds and ethnicities that are absolutely fantastic. It just seems crazy to me. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's essentially a racist thing to say. Um, you know, more, moreover, it's nonsensical. People speak English all over the world. I think the second largest English-speaking nation is India or something like that. So uh, plenty of people can, from Asia come here, follow, you know, on a point system. They do very well, probably. And, and listen, we can discuss the parameters of it, but the, the very idea that it's racist just because it exists uh, is ridiculous. And, and you know, obviously, the, mo many of the Repub so-called Republicans on, you know, on channels like CNN are, 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 you know, are like Anna Navarro. So they make ridiculous statements like that, and they seem ridiculous. But you wrote on the Federalist that CNN's Jim Acosta read the statue, uh, statue of Liberty poem, had a meltdown when someone suggested immigrants be able to read it, too. <laughs> what, what do you talk about in your piece up on the Federalist? Well, I mean, it, listen, it's I think it's emotionalism, right, to read that poem and pretend that it's like the law. Then I see Ariana Huffington and others talking about it and comparing it to an amendment of the Constitution. Yeah, they're saying it's like the Bill of Rights. I know. Do they not know, understand the difference? So, listen, I think it's a nice poem, but that's all it is. And, um, you know, I, I actually think it's a beautiful poem, and I think it shines out to people, and, and I want people who want to come here. But the idea that it says you must allow one million new green cards every year, and if you allow only 750, you're un-American, is just 
ridiculous. So it's emotionalism. And, you know, he he got killed in that debate and he shouldn't even be debating. He's supposed to be a reporter. He was killed in that debate. And well, then he just I just, can, I, can I hone in on that for one second? Because I get occasionally heckled by former colleagues at CNN when I point out that CNN is full of people who are don't don't just have opinions but actively promote using the CNN platform their opinions but they but they do it while also pretending to be journalists who are nonpartisan non-biased and just presenting the facts is, is there any sentient being out there who's really going to say that you know Jim Acosta on immigration when it comes to this White House he's just presenting the facts yeah, it's ridiculous. Now, listen, if maybe this is better. Maybe it's better than I know what these people believe, and maybe we should have a debate. But if you're going to do that, you need to send someone to the White House who understands history a little better than him, who's a better debater than he is, who has some facts you know, about immigration, um, because it's embar- I think it's embarrassing. Now, of course, I just saw someone reporting that he might get his own show now on CNN, which is perfect. So, you know, the the, the more partisan you are, you know, the the more the more successful you become, basically, it seems to me. So, uh, you know, I, I just think it, it incentivizes people to do the wrong thing. But, you know, that's where we are in journalism right now. And uh, David uh, Harsani is with us now. He's senior editor at the Federalist, nationally syndicated columnist. David, uh, I'm going to be talking about this in depth in, in a few moments here. But you also wrote up on the Federalist, get government out of the college discrimination business. I still present this challenge. Anyone out and any leftist and, you know, maybe they just won't debate me because they don't know who I am or they don't care. There, there is no ground to stand on anymore for affirmative action. The, the numbers are in. The realities are clear. It is racial discrimination in college admissions, full stop. And if somebody really wants to explain to me why a kid from Costa Rica is so much more valuable because of being Costa Rican than a kid from the Philippines, I would love for them to explain that. But, the, but that right. is the reality of the immigration system. Right. Now, everyone always sort of, or the left... I'm sorry, I said immigration. I meant affirmative action and college admissions. Action. Pardon me. It's all wrong. No. So, the, 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 you know, we always focus on, on the kid who's, who's getting, a, you know, who's being helped, supposedly. They never fo- that kid who's being helped is pushing someone, other kid out, you know, who has done the work, who, you know, could be from, like you said, the Philippines or so, wherever. And to, to make this, first of all, the, the New York Times reported this, and immediately they said it was going to benefit white applicants. Um, today we learned that it's an Asian American group that's that sued and is suing, and and white women also benefit from it. We no one no one should have this sort of state-sponsored discrimination helping them, at least in my estimation. And uh, you know we. Why should Asian kids suffer? I mean, we're just talking about immigration and everyone hates point systems. You know, this is about meritocracy. Isn't that what we're supposed to be about? My idea is simply that the government should get out of the business of trying to, uh, you know, push any kind of admissions policy and let's do it or have a colorblind admission policy pushed. I mean, that, that's how it should be done. Well, I think there's the record. There's plenty of data. In fact, the University of California state school system gives mm-hmm. us all the data we need to see that, yeah, there are there there will be differences. And in, in that case in particular, it means at the top end schools that require higher grades and higher SAT scores, you have more Asian American uh, students. That's just what that's just what's happened in California. There will be some shifts, but the social engineers, the Democrat Party don't like these things it it bothers them and there's a whole bunch of other reasons which as i said i'll I'll be going into but for me david the the biggest uh the the biggest problem that i think will be exposed as this comes out with the administration looking at it is that the schools are lying 
They do have quotas. They just pretend not to have quotas. They do have point systems. They just don't actually write them down anywhere because the year in and year out, the, uh, the percentages of different minorities stay exactly the same. There's no way that that happens based on the applicant pool. That's just nonsense. Right. I mean, I, you know, and there's no, it, there's two things to think about there. One is that there's, there's really no way to govern this. Schools are going to do what they want anyway. And in my estimation, they should be allowed to do whatever they want to do. But it does remind me, and I mentioned this, of the Jewish quotas, you know, at Ivy League schools, including Harvard in the 20s, when too many Jews were getting in through academics. Yeah, Harvard got to be 20 percent Jewish. And they're like, whoa, we've got to put in a quota to make there be less Jews at Harvard. That was what they did. Right. So they came up with, uh, you know, um, other sorts of measurements that they weighed about character and so forth to keep, you know, to to, to institute a quota without saying that they were. And what Jews did in those days were they they started their own schools. They they went to other schools and made them better, frankly. And I'm sure that other populations in this country could do the same thing. This is, you know, you can't stop people from succeeding. So I, I don't worry too much about this, but I think just as an ideal, it's a, just a terrible practice, and it's not really helping anyone. So um, I think it's worth uh, worth the fight over, you know, just in a bigger picture. I, I also though think that, that if universities are going to uh, constantly promote uh, the federal government intervening in all issues of, of race and, and any issue of discrimination anywhere across the country, whether it's uh, gender discrimination, any number of things, then they should have to live under those laws, too. I, I don't think that fe- that university, you know, the same reason why you can't say that you have a private business that discriminates on the basis of race or gender or anything else. Universities shouldn't. I know you say leave them alone, but I don't think they should be allowed to. I don't think they should be exempt from some of the very policies that they are most full throated in supporting. <laughs> Well, my, my case is this. I just don't think you can really stop people from, from having admissions policies that want, unless they're discriminating. Obviously, that's against the law. But they are but, discriminating. Uh, well, I'm sorry. Discrimination's against the law, except this kind of discrimination against Asians. Well, but I think, I think, yeah, I think that's going to change. I think they could get away with it as long as it was white students and, and that was the perception. But now there's enough data to show that but, that's, that's not, in fact, the case. David, i got to leave it there with you. But uh, thefederalist.com for more of David's latest. And uh, also follow him at David Harsanyi on Twitter. Thank you, sir, for joining. Great to have you. Always a pleasure. Thank you. You know, there are many things about the Trump administration that I really like, that I really support. I come here and I talk to you about them. But taking on affirmative action is one of the ones that I am honestly most supportive of because it is an argument that is just completely steeped in emotionalism, lies, distractions, and it's just illogical. And that the Trump administration now has decided to use the DOJ to look into discrimination in college admissions is a fantastic idea. You know, the New York Times really exposed itself on this issue recently because when this report first broke, it said that they were going to be looking into that the Trump administration will be looking into discrimination against, quote, whites, even though nowhere in the DOJ Uh, memo that was cited, was there any mention of white students? They were just looking for racial discrimination. And this is a very sensitive area on the left because there are many people who have benefited from affirmative action, including at the very top of corporate structures. There are people who have benefited from it in their educational pursuits, which have led directly to improved uh, professional careers. If anybody wants to make the case to me, for example, that Barack Obama, who by his own admission 
was a mediocre student at Occidental College in the 70s, uh, which is a third-tier college. I know that's kind of a snobbish thing to say, but it's true. It's just not, a, not an elite school by any stretch of the imagination. And then he all of a sudden just turns it on and becomes a Ivy League guy at Columbia University and then is the editor-in-chief of Harvard Law Review, um, that would be quite a story unless there were additional factors taken into account. And there are some who have written about how affirmative action has benefited them. Uh, Justice Sotomayor, for example, is a fierce defender of affirmative action, but what she really is is a fierce defender of racial preferences. And she's a fierce defender of racial preferences for Latin American people, for Latinos, for Hispanics, uh, and that's politically that has been palatable up until pretty recently. You had Justice Sandra Day O'Connor write one of the most idiotic of her rather uh, lame decisions from the bench of the Supreme Court, stating that at some point in the future, and she even gave a date, I think it was 2020 or 2025, affirmative action would not be necessary. I mean, it was staring us right in the face in the form of a Supreme Court decision that affirmative action is racial discrimination. There is no way around this. You cannot win the argument otherwise. All you have to do is change around the categorizations, and all of a sudden, if you had a situation where uh, there were uh, white people who were all deciding that people of another race would be excluded based on a holistic criteria, that would be racism. But if you have holistic criteria that is elevating some people over others in the admissions process, they want to say that that's not racism. Well, I'm sorry. That's just a crap argument. It's just bogus. It's nonsense. They're not fighting from a winnable position. It is emotionally and politically winnable, but from the perspective of logic and reason and truth, they're just fighting a losing battle. The left is fighting a losing battle. And this will open up many, many wounds, I think, on the left. This will be a painful process if they lose this because the Supreme Court will likely be taking this up and they will be taking it up in the form of discrimination in college admissions against Asian Americans. You see, they've been relying, the left has been relying on this being an issue of whiteness and white privilege and just completely sneering at the American uh, predominantly white middle class kid who wants to go to the school of his dreams. You know, sorry, kid, you don't get to go. But uh, somebody who just came across the border from Mexico or Central America, who maybe even has a higher socioeconomic status in this country than you, but because that person's last name is Martinez or Lopez, that person can go to Harvard. You are lucky if you get into state school. And that's been the reality. And I know about this. I have friends who have worked on the admissions committees of some of the top schools in the country. I've spoken to them about it at length and in private because it's an issue that I find so fascinating because it's so obviously wrong. I also went to a scholarship high school with a lot of middle to lower middle class, working class, white Catholics. And they were always struggling to get loans for college other than the federally backed loans, but I mean to get grants from college, to get financial aid. They were always struggling. And yet some of my fellow students who were black or uh, of Latino background 
with much less, I knew them, they were my friends, with much lower grades, with much lower SATs, they were being courted, they were being celebrated by the top Ivy League schools, and they were going to go and not pay a penny. Someone explained to me why that's fair. Someone explained to me how that's not racial discrimination. And oh, by the way, my friends named Zoltan and Jay and others from Filipino and Korean backgrounds, these were my classmates. They had phenomenal grades. Do you think that they got courted by Harvard? Do you think that one of my friends, I mentioned Jay, whose father was working 14 hours a day to run a little, a little delicatessen, a little deli, a, a grocery store, one of the outer boroughs of Queens, struggling and struggling to support his family, spoke no English whatsoever. Did Jay have white privilege? Well, he was Korean and he struggled to get into a school that was of the level that he deserved to go to. He was a brilliant kid. But you see, he didn't fit into one of the left's victim categories. So Asian Americans are where this breaks down for the left because now they have to make the argument that it is about quotas. Because if it's not about quotas, then they say it has to be about diversity. But if it's about diversity, what, Asians don't count? Being from India, being from the Philippines, being from Korea or China, that is not diversity now? Someone explain what concept of diversity we're really talking about here. So, and if it's, if it's about diversity, then you can't take into account what the specific percentages are. But you see, it's all built on dishonesty. Harvard and these other schools take the same amount, roughly, within a percentage or two of black students and Hispanic students and Pacific Islander students year in and year out. Well, you're going to tell me the applicant pool is exactly the same every year? Harvard has something along the lines of twenty-five to 35,000 applicants a year. There's, there's no variation in how many qualified African-American or qualified uh, uh, Latino-American students are applying? Does anyone really believe that? I mean, does Harvard think that the rest of the country is full of morons? No. they just, Well, maybe they do, actually, because it's Harvard. But they think they can get away with this because there are the, the left is really uh, deeply politically attached to this narrative, not only because it's a giveaway and it's uh, one thing they can point to with their victimology narrative of, oh, you're so oppressed, your ethnic group, your identity group is so suppressed uh, by white privilege in this country. Well, we support affirmative action. We're Democrats. We're the good people. But why don't Asians get it exactly? Oh, I'm sorry, because it's so easy if you come here from Indonesia and your parents don't speak any English and you have no socioeconomic advantage to speak of, but just work really hard and get good grades. You've had some privilege. Doesn't anyone in this country have that same, quote, privilege? The left's argument can't stand up to scrutiny here. And they are just so emotionally wedded to this. And there are a lot of people who are at the very top of the leftist uh, hierarchy of power in this country who have directly benefited from affirmative action. And if it were deemed to be discrimination by the Supreme Court, and I believe that finally we are approaching that point in time, not only will our colleges and universities have to deal with the fact, have to face up to the fact that they have, while they've been spouting all these lines about inclusion and diversity and multiculturalism, they have been actively discriminating on the basis of skin color. They've been doing that for decades now. 
at the expense of more deserving students. They've been doing that. And they've been lying to the American people by pretending that they're not operating quotas because the Supreme Court said no quotas, but you can take your holistic approach. Their holistic approach has just been a ruse. It is an excuse for racial discrimination. It is unconstitutional. The federal government has an obligation to withhold funds from schools that engage in this. And I'm sorry, but the left, the Democrats, and the media no longer get to pick groups and say, we like you more than this other group. We're going to help you get into college with lesser grades and lesser SATs and a less impressive background because as much as this upsets people, that's what is happening. And anybody who ever would want to debate this with me, I would welcome it. Bring it. They will get annihilated because they have no ground to stand on here. This is a giveaway to leftist identity politics. The Democrat Party is now largely uh, wedded to this idea. It has many of its own leaders have benefited from this. And so, yes, at the end of the day, what we have to realize is that a lot of very prominent Democrats and Republicans, too, have been the beneficiaries of racial discrimination. The only form of discrimination that is currently enshrined in law in this country, affirmative action in colleges and universities and in hiring. It needs to stop. It is unconstitutional. And Trump, darn it, is doing the right thing by fighting on this one. I'm with him 100%. One more fun thing to throw in the mix as we close up shop today here in the Freedom Hut. The term illegal alien. Oh, it's so contentious. It's one that gets immigration activists, community organizers, the media, the left, they get so fired up over this term. They absolutely hate it because it's even worse in their eyes than the almost equally vicious and xenophobic and racist illegal immigrant term. They prefer undocumented immigrant because what they're really hoping to do is, of course, to control the language and conflate immigrants with illegal immigrants, that they're all just anyone who wants to come here in any capacity is an immigrant. We're a nation of immigrants. Immigrants do the jobs Americans won't do. We need immigrants, etc., etc. It's essential for the propaganda to understand the terminology. By the way, those of you who want a great and quick read, just go through George Orwell's essay, Politics in the English Language, this is not new. He, he talks about, well, the illegal immigrant, illegal alien debate may be new, but Orwell, back in the 30s, was writing about how controlling words and specifically using words that do not mean what they seem to mean or that are intentionally obfuscating, confusing the issue is one of the oldest political tricks in the book, right? So we see this with undocumented immigrants. We now see this with the change from gay rights to gay marriage to marriage equality. There are so many different ways that language automatically influences and eventually controls political debate, and, and it's essential to pay attention to that in, in all of our talks, in all of our discussions. I remember back even in high school, I said that a group was, or I referred to myself as being supportive of a group that was pro-life. And I had a, a young woman who was a friend of mine very in a very snippy fashion correct me and say, you mean you're anti-choice? And I was very young. I was maybe 17 or 18 at the time. But I still remember looking at her and thinking, do you know how dumb you sound? Do you know how idiotic that is? 
Some people are just in need of a buck slap, my friends. And that's that's one instance when you look at this, uh, the illegal alien undocumented immigrant debate is a place where it seems maybe at first like we concede this ground. But I'm telling you, it's important. It's essential. You, you can't just let the other side literally dictate the terms of debate. If you let them do that, they have an advantage. There's a reason that the left gets so upset about using the term illegal alien, because it reinforces both the illegality of the act as well as the externality of the person involved. These are not U.S. citizens. These are not U.S. persons. They are from somewhere else, and they are breaking our laws. That's why illegal alien is such an important term to use. This whole argument when they start to say, well, it dehumanizes, that's what they'll, they'll, they'll say it's a racial slur, which, okay, so how is it a racial slur if a blonde-haired, blue-eyed uh, Croatian who's in the country illegally is an illegal alien the same way a Somali or a Mexican or a Filipino is an illegal alien? Someone explain to me how it's a racial slur, but they're just hoping to shut down debate. Again, there is a very clear impetus, a very clear uh, directive on the left to dictate the terms of debate as a means of influencing and uh, dominating the debate. So they will also say that it's dehumanizing, illegal alien, an alien doesn't sound like a human being. And to that, I would always just respond, okay, well, when you constantly refer to somebody in the law as a convicted felon, for example, that's pretty rough, that's dehumanizing. But if, well, if illegal alien is dehumanizing, that's certainly dehumanizing. But it's a descriptive term for a specific thing. Now, just because somebody is a convicted felon doesn't mean they're not a human being, doesn't mean they don't have rights. In fact, plenty of people in this country, unfortunately, are convicted felons who aren't bad people and didn't even really do anything that bad. But our government has allowed itself to write far too many laws that cover things that are non-criminal in terms of the ethics and morality involved, and we do not have strong enough defenses in place, legal defenses in place, for those who just get caught up in the patchwork of endless, stupid, criminal federal and state and local regulations. So that's a discussion, I suppose, for another day. But it's important. This illegal aliens discussion is important. It's not something that we should just leave off to the side. And Jeff Sessions has started to use the term illegal aliens. The DOJ put out a press release earlier this uh, earlier last month that said the following. Attorney General Jeff Sessions met with families who have lost loved ones because of crimes committed by illegal aliens. In the meeting, they discussed the progress being made by the Trump administration to strengthen laws protecting Americans from crimes committed by illegal aliens and the need to work to ensure that federal immigration laws are enforced. So it's an official DOJ press release that refers to illegal aliens. I should also note for all of the uh, poorly read, poorly informed media and leftist critics out there, illegal aliens appears many times in the federal criminal code. It is, in fact, the legal term for what someone is when they're in the country in violation of immigration law. So let's not be wimps on this. Let's not allow them to beat us into submission uh, with their uh, word policing, we are being accurate. They are being dishonest. They are dissembling, and we shouldn't allow it. So illegal aliens, my friends, that is the term. Illegal immigrant also 
Um, well, no, actually, I think legal immigrant is wrong because you're not an immigrant if you don't go through the immigration process. You're just somebody who shows up here in violation of law. Illegal alien is the term. I'm going to try to use it consistently here on the show. And with that, my friends, I will just say thank you, as always, for joining me. Go to bucksexton.com slash store if you want to pick up a T-shirt. If you're not already, please do follow me on facebook.com slash bucksexton. Click like on that page. You'll be in contact with all things, all peeps, Team Buck. Uh, excited for a little Freestyle Friday action with you all tomorrow. I've got a great show already planned and in mind. So until then, keep your head down, shields high.